Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. Let's finish out this series here. Any Trekkies in here? Anybody was like big Star Trek, right? So uh, when Captain Kirk's flying around out in outer space and he meets up with that uh, that new world, that new uh, that new civilization, that new race, he had a uh, he had a prime directive that was supposed to guide all of those interactions, right? Doctors and medical uh, personnel they have a they have a, a directive that's supposed to guide how they they treat people and treat patients in the Hippocratic Oath. So. Jesus gave us a prime directive as well before he left. Um, It's real simple, and it's for every single person who calls themselves a Christ follower or a Christian or whatever title you want to put on it, a believer, however you want to to phrase your relationship with God saying, look, I'm going to be a disciple, I'm going to be a follower. Um, This applies to every single one of us. And some people get a little bit uncomfortable when we talk about this word. It's, it's almost become a dirty word in our, uh, our lexicon today. It's proselytizing, right? Nobody likes that. Nobody's, nobody's comfortable with the idea of proselytizing when it comes to religion or with God, but we're totally comfortable doing it in every other area of our life, from politics to supplements to restaurants to, to vehicle brands to, uh, to beauty products to that Amazon deal, you know, Amazon Prime. Uh, to podcast, that amazing target buy. We will stick that stuff on social media so fast. We will send texts. Uh, we'll take pictures of it and send it off to people. We'll, we'll make phone calls, right? We got no problem trumpeting how great something is when we find it because um, and, and, we want other people to try it too. As a dad, that's been one of the cool things is my, my kids have grown up and my son's eight and he's still doing this a little bit. Ava's doing it a little bit less. My son's still doing it. And uh, I can't tell you the number of times in a given day, especially through the summer here, where, where Torn's calling out, dad, dad, you got to come see this. You got to come see it. There's a bug I found. There's a rock that's really cool. There's a whatever it is. But he's so excited about it. And what do we do with things we're excited about? We share them. And this is how God designed his kingdom to grow. Person to person, discovery to discovery, life change to life change. This series has been predicated on this one idea. It's been founded on this, this one concept that God wants you and I to be salt and light in this world. That's what he's designed us for. That's what he's called us for. God wants you and me to be salt and light in the world. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. This is kind of the, the passage here that we've been working off of uh, through the series. Jesus says, you're like a light for the whole world. A city built on a hill can't be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it underneath a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a lampstand where he gives light for everybody in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so they'll see the good things you do and they'll praise your Father in heaven. This is, this is what he left us with. This is how it worked for Jesus' very first disciples. You know, as they followed him down a road and kind of stalked him, and he turned around, and he goes, what do you guys want? Well, we're just interested. We wanted, to, we wanted to come and see what you were about. And so he says, all right, follow me. Come on, come see, come hang out with me. And so they do that, 
right? And, and as they do that, they invite some more people, and it continues on and on and on. His disciples grow. And, uh, and this is the model that he directed them to, and it's the one that he left them with. You know, Jesus spent about 40 days after his resurrection gathering his people together, teaching them. Really what he was doing, it, Tony's worked a lot. Obviously, Tony planted, uh, planted Adventure. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of church planners. The first thing you do in a church plant is you, you gather together this group of people who are going to be your launch team. This is essentially what Jesus is doing in those last 40 days. He's getting his launch team together to get ready to, to launch the church. And it culminated with this directive that we've been talking about. And there's two places where his intention for the church is, is recorded. One gives us the context for where he, he wants to see it spread out to. He tells them, look, go out Jerusalem, which was kind of, that was their comfort zone. That's where they are. Judea, all right, this is kind of where our family is and our kin. And this is kind of going out into the community we're, we're comfortable with. And then Samaria, which were the people they were totally uncomfortable with. And then the ends of the world, which that starts, starts getting adventurous, Starts feeling like you're out there just a little bit. That's a big, that's, that's a big directive. And the other one, the other, the other piece to this is he tells us what he wants us to do as we go out to those places. He says, look, I want you to make disciples of, of all those people, all those nations, baptizing them, teaching them my commandments, teaching them how to live the way that I've shown you how to live. This is your directive. This is what you've been called to. And again, it's commands for every one of us. All of us carry this responsibility if we, if we consider our, ourselves his disciples today. You know, the way we talk about Christianity today, though, is it's kind of self-centered a little bit. Because we always talk about our individual faith, right? Talk about you, you, your walk with Christ, your, your individual life of discipleship, your time in Scripture. Everything is pointed at, at us as individuals. And we focus so much in the last 70 years on, on quote-unquote individual faith, individual relationships with God, that I, I think somewhere, somewhere this question popped up. And, and because of the way we've been talking about things, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised that this question popped up. And I think it's a relevant question. It's gained traction. It's a major issue for a lot of people today. Maybe even some of you sitting here or watching online. And it's just simply this question, is there still really a need then for a communal church? This is all about just my relationship with God. If this is a personal thing, why this? Do we need this? Do we need to be a part of this? Is this an outdated and outmoded model? We really need an organized religion or, or organized communities of people. Do we need to gather in mass like we're doing right now? Do we need this? You know, personally, I, I think it's actually a, a relevant question to tackle. I, I know a lot of Christians get offended when people ask that question, but it's an honest question, and we should be able to answer it. You know, can you give some good reasons for why you're here today? Why do we meet like this? Why do we take this time? Why, why do we gather together? Why would God call us together? Is this really important? Especially, especially as we talk about this come-and-see model of, of relationship and evangelism. You know, why... Did God call us together? Why would God call us together? That's an important aspect to this. If this is just a human growth strategy or an organizational structure, then that's one thing. 
But if God himself really, really intended for this, if he founded this, if this is his, then that's something else altogether. In scripture, the Greek word you'll find for the church is, uh, is, is this word ekklesia. Um, it's a common word in Jesus' day. The Greeks would often use it in terms of a, a, in a, a civic or, or kind of political sense. So what, when a Greek used this word or a Roman used this word, it was to, to talk about these people who would gather together in a public place, kind of like a town square, and they'd get together to talk about civic and governmental concerns. But it was also a word that Jews in Jesus' day were using. So if you read through the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures that everybody used at that point, um, it was used to describe the people of Israel as God's people. So the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the New Testament, only record Jesus using this word just a couple of times. One of them is really well known. It's a studied passage in Matthew 16. It's only a few verses long. And, and in that passage, we find Jesus in this, this city called Caesarea Philippi. And he had taken his disciples there. They're kind of on the outskirts of the city. The biggest temple in town was right in front of Jesus and his disciples. And it was built next to this cave that was known as the Gates of Hades. It went way down, huge cave. They built this huge temple next to it. And the temple was uh, dedicated to Pan and the worship of Pan. And Jesus starts having a conversation with them. And uh, he's prompting them about who he is. He asks them, he goes, who, who do people say that I am? He's trying to nail this down because it goes to his authority. And so he asks them, who, who do people say that I am? So they, they kind of hem and haw and answer a little bit. You can tell they're a little nervous maybe about answering the question. And then he, he kind of nails down on them a little bit more. Well, who do, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, look, you are, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And off of that, he has this conversation with him. Look at verse 18. He says, now I say to you, you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church and all the powers of hell. A lot of translations, the, the original is the gates of Hades, which is right in front of them. The gates of Hades will not conquer it. Now, if you're reading this in the original Greek, instead of the word church there, guess what word it would be? Ecclesia. So, Jesus uses this word talking about a community of people coming together for a common purpose like the Greeks, but also a common lineage and king like the Israelites. And he brings kind of the Old Testament and New Testament together of how God is working to draw his people and creation to him. But he takes it a little further, right? Whose is it? There's a lot of discussion about that passage, about what he's actually doing with Peter and where Peter sits in authority in the church. And regardless of all of that, whose does he say the church is? It's in there. He says, it's my ecclesia. It's my community of people. It's my church, it's not Paul's. It's not a denomination. It's not tied down to a physical location or, or even a specific place in time. It's the community of people that God draws together his idea. And he says, what about it? He says, the gates of Hades can't overcome it. Now, obviously, there's, a, there's an immediate context to this. They're standing in front of the gates of Hades. What does that represent to those, those, those disciples who are standing there with him? This is the hell. <laughs> this is the most unclean place in the area. This is the reason why they're struggling with this is because no good Jew would ever even go where they're standing. Like, it's unclean just to even be in the area. And Jesus takes them there and says, look, 
You guys are so worried about being unclean. I'm telling you, man, we can overpower all of this. I'm going to send you through it. So the evil that they've known, the, the power that the world worships, and looks to the brokenness, the mistaken devotion that people are chasing to try to find happiness, which, man, I, I think that's the, that is the greatest addiction and drug in American culture today. Man, there is more money spent, more time, more heartache over trying to find happiness than anything else in this world. People are addicted to trying to find it. And he says, look, the ecclesia, my ecclesia, my community of people can overcome the hurts of the sins of the world, not on its own, but because of and in him. See, this starts getting into why I think the church is relevant for today. Why can't we just do this on our own? Let's have that conversation for a minute. The world needs the church to point beyond creation to its creator. Scripture tells us the primary thing that sin did when it entered into humanity is it wired us to be self-focused. Basically, it made us narcissistic. You know, the belief that if we would just be more enlightened, if we could just harmonize, if we could just work together, if we could just kind of evolve our minds to it, humans can fix ourselves, we can fix our communities, we can fix the world, we can fix creation. That's, that's called humanism. And that's what God confronts us with in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He says, essentially, he says, look, you guys, you've exchanged God's truth for a lie, you know, we depend on, serve, and worship what's created rather than the creator. That's the first and foremost mistake that you're making here. And so it makes sense when you think about it, right? Who do you depend on first and foremost when a problem comes up in life? Well, first person I go to is me, right? And I try to solve my own problems. And then when I can't solve my own problems, who do you go to next? Not wise people, you go to your friends, <laughs> right? You go to them, and as peers, we try, to like, we, we try to work the problem together, and then if you can't figure it out from there, you, you, you get on YouTube, and you look and see if somebody else has made a video about it, right? And you go to some expert on YouTube, and at some point, long down the line, we all look at each other, and we go, well, I don't know. I guess all we can do is pray about it. And we put God at the end of the process rather than the beginning. You know, part of the reasons why we're broken, part of the reason why people around us are hurting is because of our tendency to not put God in the right place of authority and priority in every area of our life. You know, one of the simplest and most important things that you and I can do to be salt and light in this world is just simply to live with God as top priority. And we're going to look weird. People are going to look at us and, and go, I don't get you. But I, I can promise this, and we've had this conversation over the last few weeks. Who do we go to when everything else breaks down and we can't find answers anywhere else? We go to the weird people because often they're the ones who seem to have their stuff together. And so we go to them, and even though they don't look like they maybe have as much quote-unquote fun as we're having, we go to them and go, okay, you don't seem to be dealing with the same problems I'm dealing with. So what do I do? How do I deal with this? Why are you not experiencing the same kind of brokenness that I'm experiencing? And the, one of the best things we can do to be salt and light is to just gently and lovingly lead them through that pro thought process of how to put God first. 
But you know what? If it's just us, then maybe it's random chance. Maybe it's just a fluke. Maybe it's just one of those things that works for you, but it isn't going to work for me. So God calls an entire community of people to come together and to live that way to show this isn't a fluke. Man, this isn't just a random chance occurrence that things are better for this one person than another. The way it's supposed to work is for the church to show God's wisdom. You know, Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus. He goes through in, in verse, eight, he, uh, verse 8 of uh, Ephesians 3. He says, though I'm the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. He says, this is my personal mission. This is my purpose. This is the ministry that God's given me, which isn't so different than the ministry God's given all of us. But that's his personal one. That, then he turns the corner. He starts talking about the community. Look at verse 10. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety. Our, our first and primary issue is that we don't live with God first. We live lives of worship pointed in the wrong direction. The world needs to see what happens when our priorities are right. And it needs to see it in, in each of us individually, but it also needs to see what happens when a whole group of people, that you know what, a whole group of people can actually live without experiencing the same kind of brokenness everybody else seems to experience. Now, for the second thing, the second reason why I believe the church is so important, I need you to help me modify the second point in here. So point number two, right, to cross out the word see, and I, I want to ask you to write the word experience above it. The world needs the church to experience God's design for people to live in purpose and harmony. Yeah, I, I wrote that with see, and I, I believe that, but you know what? We see lots of things, uh, and then we don't care about them. <laughs> we, we, we need to experience them because once we experience them, then we're more likely to actually follow along, right? John 13, 34 through 35, a humbling, humbling little set of verses here from Jesus. He said, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I've loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Man, everybody from John Lennon to the Black Eyed Peas to Michael Jackson have written ballads about how the world needs love and peace, right? And I find it fascinating that everybody in the world wants a world full of love and peace, and everybody in the world does unloving things and things that, that do the opposite of create peace in their families and relationships. Which is one of the reasons why I know it's built into our, our, just our base design. We are all longing for that. Even though we don't live it, we all know that's how we're supposed to experience life. Jesus knew it too. Man, he knew it on an even deeper sense what true love looks like. Man, and how badly we need it and how badly this world needs it. And, but he also knew it'd be one of the primary things that then would attract people to him through us together. You know, one of the reasons why it's not possible to carry out this mission, this directive that Jesus left us with, because it's designed to exist and be experienced in the context of, of community. You can't share love. You can't live in a community of love and peace without being in a community. It's just within the, the very definition of what it is. 
You know, in the early church, and I've spent a lot of time studying the early church through the, the, especially the last five or six years. Man, I've spent a lot of time looking at how, to, how does a group of people who had their primary leaders all killed, who couldn't, couldn't wear a badge, couldn't actually admit in public that they were actually part of this group, how does a, how does a community like that grow exponentially? I spent a lot of time looking at it. Well, this is how, this is why. Those people, even though they, they couldn't live with that title, they couldn't tell people, people looked at them and said, you guys, you're friends, you all seem to live differently. Man, you don't seem to have the same brokenness, and for whatever reason, you guys seem to love each other a whole lot differently than the rest of us love each other, and you seem to have a lot more peace than the rest of us experience peace. Again, we see that in the church in persecuted countries today, and, and we certainly have lots of historical accounts from the early church about it. You know, one of the most succinct is, is from a, a sarcastic satirist. He was, like the, um, he was like the Bill Maher of his day, I guess. Um, he was named Lucian. He wrote this about Christians. He said, it's incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they're all brethren. He's writing this, shaking his head, going, stupid people. This guy that they follow, he told them they were all family, and they buy into that. They live totally differently. You know, one of the things that has most undermined the, the, the Western church, which we're a part of, is we haven't done a great job of this through the years. We haven't lived in harmony, and we haven't lived in love with each other as the church very well at times. You know, even just in the last few years, we've allowed a lot of fears and anger and misgivings and political views and cynicism to become more important than our unity in Christ. Man, a lot of us, we need to ask for forgiveness for some conversations we've had, for some memes that we've posted, and for some attitudes that we've gotten stuck in. I just tell you, it's hurt the witness of the church. We gotta figure out how to do better in that. I'm not saying that you can't live with your, your morals and with your standards, I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that the way that we live with each other in the midst of that, we've gotta be real careful with. That is our witness to the world. And these are just a couple of the reasons I believe the world needs to understand the church as a community rather than just as an individual faith. See, they've come to understand, they've come to define Christianity as this thing that's just between you and God. And when you do that, you've taken a huge part of what God intended out of their understanding of a relationship with God. It's designed, yes, between us and God individually, but also in community. You can't take that out. With that said, let me change directions just slightly and suggest that therefore there's some things that we need out of a community of Christ followers to be able to reflect Christ out into the world that needs his light so much. I need the church because God uses it to grow me. You need it because it, this is how God grows us. You know, I, I, 
And I've had this conversation with a lot of people. When I hear people who come to me and go, well, you know, I, I don't need that. I, I don't need organized religion. I don't need a church building. I can sit in my apartment. I can sit in my house. I can go through my life. I got podcasts. I've got books. I've got commentaries. I don't need that. I can be a good Christian without that. One of the first things I do is ask them about their growth. And not just their knowledge. Look, you can get knowledge out of books, totally. I mean, I, I did an entire master's degree online without ever setting foot in a classroom. I mean, it is possible to gain knowledge without being in a classroom or, you know, without being a part of a community. But that's not necessarily growth. Man, I know lots of people with a lot of knowledge who still don't know how to apply that knowledge. Growth is something totally different. It's almost impossible to grow past our struggles by ourselves. Weight Watchers knows it. That's why Weight Watchers for years, you had to go to a meeting, right? AA knows it. That's why AA pushes so hard to make sure you go to those meetings and you've got those, those sponsors that are around you, you've got people around you because we know inherently you're not gonna grow without some people there that love you enough to encourage you, but also to challenge you. And sometimes to call you out. Sometimes they give you a little smack on the face and go, wake up. Like, be careful. God designed us for community. And a community loves each other enough, again, to encourage each other, but also to, to challenge each other. Provide discipline for each other. None of us like that, but we need it. So God talks to us about how this will work in places like Ephesians 4. He says, look, I'm equipping each of you to do different things for the work that I know that's out there uh, to get done. And look at the results down in verse 16 of Ephesians 4. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its, its own special work, which by the way, that means that if you're not working, if you're not a part of it, if you're not joined to it, it's missing something, okay? He designed all of us to be a part of it. It helps the other parts grow so the whole body is healthy and growing and full of what? Oh, we come back to that love thing again. Uh, ever tried to function with a uh, part of your body in a cast? When I was in high school, I ripped a ligament in my thumb so my thumb would just like flop around. And uh, when they, they sewed it back together, I had a cast that went up over my whole hand. I am really right-handed. I couldn't feed myself well, like I would miss and stick corn up my nose when I was trying to get the spoon up to my mouth. I could barely wipe myself. I mean, look, it's a horrible experience when you start, when you start trying to operate without a body part. Who, was, who, who broke their toe the other day? Kaylee? Yeah, dropped a can or something. On. I don't know. You broke in a toe, you know real quickly that you can't do the things that you would normally do. Even with a little bitty toe. Tiny one, the one on the end, that little bitty one, stub. I don't know why God gave us that. He should have given us four toes. It should have ended with this rounded thing that couldn't get caught on stuff. Anyway. And suddenly it changes your entire life experience without that little nub on the end of your foot. First Corinthians, Paul goes one step forward. He asks a question. He goes, look, can any body part just exist on its own other than thing from, uh, from Adam's family? I mean, but again, that wasn't real, just in case you didn't know that. But like, I mean, if you find an ear out in the middle of the street, call somebody. But I mean, it can't do anything, right? I mean, it's silly to even think about, right? A hand or a foot or a leg or any body part that's scattered around, it is useless if it's on its own. Obviously, the answer is no. We weren't designed that way. 
I also need the church because I wasn't designed to do life alone. I was designed to do it as part of this body. We're designed to be connected first and foremost with God through Jesus. And that's why at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew, what, what does Jesus, what's the last thing that he actually leaves them with? He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm with you always, even the end of the age. As long as there is, as long as there is, is time left, I'll still be here with you. But God designed us to need each other as well. We go back all the way to Genesis, right? He, he creates Adam, goes through, he's naming the animals. He's, he's having time where he's hanging out with God one-on-one directly, and God still looks at him and goes, man, this, we're not good yet. He still needs somebody as a companion. He, he needs, I designed him to experience humanity, not just as a human, but as humanity. It's more than one person. Man, we see it over and over in the New Testament. It's made quite clear. In the Old Testament, it's made clear in the New Testament. We're not designed to do life outside of a relationship with other believers. There's so many passages that address this need, the need for, again, encouragement, accountability, healing, growth. Maybe none, though, is more straightforward than Hebrews 10.24. Look at this. The author writes to him and says, we've we got to keep encouraging each other to be thoughtful, loving, to live lives filled with good deeds. Some people have got out of the habit of meeting with other believers for worship, but we've, we must not do that. Instead, focus on encouraging others, knowing the day of the Lord's coming is getting closer. Last thing is, I need the, I need the church. I need the community of believers that God has called together because Frankly, the work is too big for any one of us by ourselves. None of us are going to be able to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the entire world on our own. You don't have the time, the energy. I mean, Paul tried. Paul, Paul made a significant, you know, push, but even he couldn't hit the whole world. You know, forget our own needs for just a, a, a minute. The brokenness in this world is just simply too broad and too deep for any of us to light up by ourselves. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, there's different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit's the source of them all. There's different kinds of service. We all serve the same Lord. God works in different ways. It's the same God who does the work in all of us. He, he's taking us back and going, remember, this is something God's ordained. This is something that we're all, we're not committed to each other just even based off the directive. God brings us all together in him. It all comes back to Christ. And he says a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can do what? We can help each other. We're designed to do this together. You know, when I lived on the east coast of Florida, one of the things I loved to do, we would, I, I did a lot of fishing in the intercoastal waters and out into the, uh, out in the ocean, and there was a spot called Sebastian Inlet, it was about 25 minutes uh, down the coast, world-class fishing, I mean world-class, people come from all over the place to go fish there. And uh, so we would go out there into the ocean, but it's where the, the rivers kind of come together and they shoot out. Uh, through the, the islands to go out into the ocean. And there's not a space to do that for a long way going north and south right there. And uh, so there were these big sand flats that were right there at the mouth of the inlet on the, the, the riverside. And uh, we would catch all kinds of fish and stuff in there. But at night, one of the things that we would do is we would go out and we would tie a kayak 
onto our, our waist with just a rope, and we put a car battery in the kayak, um, which I know it's salt water and electricity, but you, it's not enough to kill you. Car battery won't kill you. Anyway, so we would take a line that would run out off of that and down a pole and go to a little waterproof flashlight bulb that was just a tiny little bulb uh, on the end of the pole, and we would go out and we would gig for flounder and sheephead and some other stuff, and so we'd walk around the salt flats like 1 a.m., which is a little freaky because you pull out like hammerheads and bull sharks out of the same place during the day and they're feeding at night. So you wonder why the fish were jumping. But yeah, you had this, you had this tiny little light down at the bottom and it, you know, it wouldn't illuminate much. You'd get a circle maybe, I don't know, three feet around. That was about it. So, I mean, you kind of felt like you were alone. There was one night though, we had a whole bunch of us show up. And I got there a little bit late, and so there were some guys that were already out there that were doing it. And so, yeah, as I, as I got out of my car, and I'm getting all the gear and stuff out. I'm looking out, and there's a light that comes on. It's just this little pinprick of light. And there's another light that comes on, another light that comes on, another light that comes on. And you know, all those little pinpricks of light, sooner or later, as I'm starting to walk out there, man, the salt flats just start glowing. Get a little less worried about the sharks when there's a whole bunch of other people. It's amazing what happens when that light shines out with a whole group of people together all working towards the same thing, shining their light in the darkness. I, I know it's popular to think that we can do this life on our own, but that's our pride. We can be everything God wants us to be, but only in the context of a, of a community of believers. And at the end of the day, that, that admitting that, being a part of that is part of what God uses to grow us and to light us up and to help us. We gotta get past thinking that we can do this on our own. The Great Commission is designed with the church in mind. It's the only way that it was ever designed. God never intended for you to light up the, 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 the world by yourself. I mean, one grain of salt, one lamp in the darkness just doesn't accomplish what God designed us to do together. As we finish this series out, I, I want to read you one last passage, one last set of scriptures, and it's actually a, a prayer. It's one of the most impactful prayers I know of in all of the Bible, and it's Jesus' prayer. And it's his prayer for us just before he's arrested. He's still in the garden. He's going through all of that. I don't know if you knew this or not. He prayed for you and I in that moment. This is where he does it. Can I read this for you as we finish out? John 17, 15 through 23. This is Jesus talking to God. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into this world, um, I'm sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I'm praying not only for these disciples, so he's talking about the ones who are there with him at the moment. He says, but also for all those who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. That's you and me. He says, I pray that they'll be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us so the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me 
and that you love them as much as you love me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for choosing to use us. And I've said it a number of times, I don't know why you choose me, but you do. I don't know why you chose the people in this room, but you have. And Father, you not only do you want to save us, not only do you want relationship with us, not only do you want us to have relationship with each other, but Father, you also want us to be on purpose with you. You want us to be a part of, of this work that you're doing in this broken world to, to bring people back to you. Father, I'm humbled by that. I, I just simply pray that you help each one of us to understand what it means to be salt and light. And Father, where we need to ask for forgiveness, or maybe we haven't acted in love and harmony and unity here lately, Father, give us, the, uh, give us soft enough hearts where we can admit that and seek you in the midst of it. And Father, I pray that, I know there's a lot of broken relationships, I pray you heal those. I pray you draw us together in love, in your unity, in you. That's the only way it's going to happen. So again, we can experience the life you designed us to experience, the joy, the happiness, the unity, the hope that comes with being a part of a community of people who put you first and who are focused on you. Man, there are so many people who are hurting around us, and I just simply pray you give each one of us opportunities just to, to shine your light in, again, to be salt in their life in some way, shape, or form. Give us the courage we need to be able to do that. And Father, most of all, give us the desire to be yours. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.